I'm jealous of your snack, Greg. <laughs> Ooh, that was a good crunch. Wait, now I want an Oreo. <laughs> did that sound good on the microphone? It did sound good. I liked it. Now I'm talking with a mouthful. What are we talking about today? Are we talking about, are we talking about this dessert? This is essentially a hint. Really? But also because I really wanted an Oreo. Are there, is there awesome science related to the, the structure of an Oreo? Ooh, crunch, 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 crunch. <laughs> right, should we start? Yeah. Today's story is all about what is often hailed as one of medicine's all-time biggest breakthroughs. Hmm. A drug that has saved millions of lives. Insulin. Say it again? Insulin. Do you mean insulin? I say insulin. What? You say in, insulin? Yeah, yeah. With is that a, a UK-US thing? Insul- I think it must be. Or do I just say it wrong? No, I think you say it right. I always, yeah, I've always said insulin. Wow. I think that's how we say I it. I had no idea. I thought everybody said insulin. Interesting. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's more than that. It's, it's going to be a story about how an important discovery actually comes about, how a team grows around it, the steps you have to go through to test and develop a new drug, and how that then spreads to the wider world. Amazing. Oh, and uh, it's going to feature a dog called Marjorie. Oh my God, I can't wait. But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, people, or maybe dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Maren Hunsberger. I'm so excited to be listening to the story today. Uh, I'm Greg Foote. I am the storyteller for this episode, which means uh, you don't know anything about this. I have no idea what's going on. uh, We're going to start with diabetes. I wanted to find out when we first used the term diabetes. And in doing so, I discovered this amazing thing, which is called the Ebers papyrus. The it's, oh, it's, no way, on papyrus? It's named after George Ebers. He's the guy who bought this particular papyrus, uh, 1862, and then he publishes it. It was originally found over two and a half thousand years ago, around 550 BC, between the legs of a mummy, essentially. Of course. Yes, probably it was the first mention of diabetes in the history of medicine. It is a text that contains probably the first treatment of these disorders was a quite bizarre treatment consisting of the decoction of the bones, wheat, grain, and um, other substances per day administered to the patients. A concoction of what? Uh, lemons, wheat, grain, and other stuff. As a treatment for diabetes? Yeah, so... Written down on this papyrus scroll? Yeah, exactly. Now, this is Dr. Nicola Bragazzi. My name is uh, Nicola. I am a medical doctor, currently postdoctoral fellow at the York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That bit in the papyrus that's of interest to endocrinologists... (laughs) I struggle with that one. Um, they're doctors who, an, an endocrinologist is a doctor who's interested in the endocrine system, which doesn't really help as a definition, but the endocrine system <laughs> is the glands that produce the hormones that control oh. your metabolism and your growth and your development and sexual function and sleep and mood and all those sorts of things. So Everything important? The bit, Yeah, essentially, yeah. The bit in that papyrus that the endocrinologists are interested in um, is when it talks about urine, which is too plentiful, which is a, a common symptom oh. of di- diabetes. Right. So that is written in this papyrus. All the way back in 500s BC. Although there is some debate, as often always, is the case. Always, right? Controversy. It actually reads, eliminate urine, which is to Asher, is the word they use. Mm. And that word Asher can both mean plentiful and often. So it could 
be describing polyuria, which is an increased volume of urine, an increased, you know, frequency of peeing, which is more cystitis rather than diabetes. But it is also believed to be mentioned in ancient Indian and Chinese texts too. So I think we can agree that this notion of diabetes as something that people are suffering with has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Exactly. And people are trying to come up with solutions for it since the time we noticed it's a problem. Exactly. And the name actually came 150 years later, hmm. though. The term diabetes is a Greek term. It is derived from uh, the Greek uh, diabetes. It means passing through because of the high amount of urine of the patient. So it, essentially this term is courtesy of a Greek physician called uh, Aretius of Cappadocis. Easy to say. Aretius of <laughs> Cappadocius. Thanks, Eretius. Um, he noticed that the condition causes this constant flow of urine that we've already mentioned. So he named it diabetes, which essentially is Greek for a siphon. Oh, okay. A sure. thing that spits out lots that of mean, water. makes sense. <laughs> so we know it's a problem. We're, we've given it a name. It's common enough that we have a name for it. How do we treat it? The best treatment was diets, like a really strict diet. Some huh. some diets that were like 450 calories a day. Oh, no. Yeah, so quite no a few good. patients just died of starvation. Yeah, you can, yeah, that's not a solution. I mean, it's a solution to the diabetes, but not a solution to anything else. To life, no. Let's get into then this, this discovery of insulin, which really does revolutionize the treatment of diabetes. Okay, but wait, so it makes you pee a lot, but what, why? Like what's happening in your body? What is, what is diabetes? Okay, so I can give you some of the symptoms right now, but I kind of want to park like the science of it, okay, okay. which I want we'll to get to. But symptoms of diabetes, urinating often, talked about that, feeling very thirsty, feeling very hungry, even though you are eating, extreme fatigue, blurry mm. vision, uh, having cuts and bruises that are slow to heal. They're all symptoms of this thing known as diabetes. And I'm going to start the story in 1889, right? There are two German researchers, Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Mehring. They realise that when they remove the pancreas from a dog, it develops those symptoms of diabetes and soon dies. Dogs contributing to science throughout human history. Wait, this is so interesting though. Were they actually looking for cause or treatment for diabetes or were they just taking or various organs out of... I don't actually Test know. Animals. I don't actually know. I think they were probably just doing various experiments. Is my is my guess at this at this point. That experiment leads Minkowski and von Meering to the idea that the pancreas is where what they call pancreatic substances are produced. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> and they control the metabolism of carbohydrates, the breakdown of carbohydrates into sugar. So let's just take a little time out okay. for some pancreas chat. Ooh, I'd love to talk about a pancreas. Right? If you want to find your pancreas, it's in your abdomen. Okay. So um, it's roughly uh, halfway between belly button and nipple height. We're both feeling our art abdomens here. Right. So you want to go halfway between the two and your pancreas, it's about six inches long, looks a little bit like a banana. And what does the pancreas do? Great well, question. Essentially, its job is to release a variety of juices Tasty. into your bloodstream and your ducts. And those digestive juices, enzymes as we call them, help break down your food. Got it. So they help us get our energy. We need them to be able to use food to power our bodies. That's what Minkowski and von Meering realized in 1889, that if you remove the pancreas from a dog, then they can't break down their food. They can't metabolize carbohydrates, as they said, right? And then the dog develops the symptoms of diabetes. Mm, so fatigue, needing to pee a lot, being very thirsty. Yep. Huh. All those things. To get to insulin, for that, we need to jump forward 20 years to 1910. And the work of a gentleman with an outstanding name. Mm. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. I love these Sir names. Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer. 
No. Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer. Sharpie Schaefer? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's amazing. And this, uh, this guy is uh, considered the father of um, endocrinology. He coined the different terms related to endocrinological disorders. He was uh, probably the first to introduce uh, the word endocrine. He also introduced the word adrenaline. And it's him who also suggests that diabetes doesn't come from the whole pancreas not being there, right, which is what we were seeing in that experiment. It's actually down to one chemical missing from the pancreas in people with diabetes. One of those juices. And he calls that chemical insulin, ah. which comes from the Latin word insula, meaning island. Wait, but why? Why would you name it that? Well, I quote, because the cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas produce it. Let me break okay. that down. I took to Google, <laughs> right? So the Langerhans are macrophages, so they're large cells. Oh. Islets are, that's just a description for an area of tissue. So he called it insulin after island because the cells that produce it in the pancreas look like distinct areas of large cells, i.e. they look like islands. I see. And therefore the Latin word insula takes you to insulin. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned macrophages because isn't there an immune component to people who have a certain kind of diabetes, type 1 diabetes? Tell me more, Marin. I learned recently that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder. And that blew my mind because I had never heard it referred to as such. And it's because your body is looking at those cells that produce insulin and saying, this shouldn't be here. We don't like it. Get it out. And your own body attacks those cells that should be producing insulin. By the way, I also read that the name insulin could have come from someone else, uh, Jean or Jean de Meyer. Oh, just want to put that out there because again right. there's always discussion over we these sorts of things we've got to cover our bases okay so we've covered the where the name insulin comes from this guy the father of endocrinology has figured out that it's produced by the pancreas and people with diabetes just don't have this one particular kind of juice what does insulin do? yeah what does it do is a very good question I put that to Nicola Insulin is a peptide hormone. Basically, is able is responsible of the uptake of glucose and its absorption. So, when you eat food or when you drink something sugary, that gets broken down. It gets digested into sugars. When you've eaten your Oreo, yes, right now it's getting broken down into sugars, specifically glucose. Basically, whatever it is gets broken down into the basic building block of glucose. Now, that glucose goes into your blood mm -hmm. and your blood sugar level or your blood glucose level goes up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that acts as a signal to your pancreas to produce and then release insulin because mm -hmm. insulin is a hormone. Hormones are chemicals made by specialist cells, they're released into the bloodstream to send a message to another part of the body. They're like a little messenger. Exactly that, right? So when your blood sugar rises, your pancreas produces that messenger insulin, it pumps it out, and its job is to help your cells use that glucose for energy. Ah, so the message is, hey, open up, knock, knock, we've got glucose for you to use. Pretty much. Remember respiration from school? Oh. Right, this is going to be like, some people will be like, oh man, I remember <laughs> respiration. cellular respiration, like not you and me breathing, but cellular, cellular respiration. Cellular respiration, okay. yeah. So um, glucose from your digested food is your fuel. Yeah, and the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then that, that glucose reacts with oxygen to release the energy that's locked up inside that glucose. Got it. Right? So it's basically glucose, oxygen, reaction 
reaction together, boom, here's some energy. you have some to energy. have that insulin. Otherwise, your cells won't have energy. If you don't have that insulin, you can't get the glucose into your cells. It's just chilling. To the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, hey. to actually create that energy. It's just hanging out in your bloodstream. One simple way to picture it is that you have a receptor for insulin on the surface of your cells. And when insulin is present, it, it locks into that receptor and then it cues a channel, a glucose channel to open to let glucose into the cell. God. Right? It. It's like a bouncer. <laughs> right, like a security guard. It's like once it's there, it opens it and the glucose can come in. It's like not free ladies night, but free glucose night. <laughs> shut, shut, shut. If you don't make enough insulin, then there's nothing to lock into that receptor. Not enough insulin, nothing to lock into the receptor. The glucose channel stays closed and that precious fuel can't get in. Got it. You can't create the energy that you need and the glucose stays in the blood. You keep a high blood glucose level and that eventually causes a variety of health problems that we call diabetes. The story of how the treatment for diabetes is developed is brilliant. Uh, And I'm going to get into that after the break. We're back. This is surprisingly brilliant. And today we are all in for insulin. God, <laughs> I just thought of that on the fly. Proud of myself. <laughs> so we're talking about insulin. It's a drug that's developed to treat diabetes uh, and it's saved countless millions of lives. Before I get to that story of how it's developed, I want to mention that there are two types of diabetes. Right, I've heard of type 1 and type 2. Type 1 and type 2. So with type 1, you don't produce insulin or there's so little of it that it's ineffective. Now remember I said that you need that insulin there to allow the sugar into the cells. So the cause of type 1 insulin is your immune system attacking and destroying the cells in your pancreas that make insulin. So type 1 diabetes is usually diagnosed in children and Mm. young adults, but it can appear at any age. And as you don't make insulin, you need to take on an external source of insulin every day to stay alive. So that's where people come in with the jabs or like an insulin pump. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, if you if you don't, then the potential complications are blindness, nerve damage, uh, kidney and heart problems. Whoa, wait, why? Why does why does glucose hang high blood it's, glucose levels cause the stuff that like that? It's that high blood glucose that just mucks up your whole system. Whoa, gets all the signaling, all kinds of whack. So the other type is type 2. Type 2, you do make insulin, but your body has become resistant to it. Hmm. So this is the most common type of diabetes and you can develop type 2 diabetes at any time, most Mm. often in middle age or old age. Figures from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, yeah, that from their website, suggest that in 2015, arguably quite a few years ago, just under 10% of the US population had diabetes. That was around 30 million people. That's quite a lot of us. And that was five years ago. Jeez Louise. I do think that a common misconception of type 2 diabetes is that It is solely driven by your diet or you being unhealthy, but there's quite a large genetic component. Like you Mm. have to be genetically predisposed to getting diabetes. Especially type 1. Definitely type 1, but also type 2. So that's the pancreas, tick, insulin, tick, diabetes, tick. Okay. Covered those. I'm ready. I've got all all the bases covered here. So back to the story and on to how researchers took that work being done by Minkowski and Von Meering, that work on dogs, to develop one of the most important drugs of all time. Now, it's time to meet two of our main characters in this story, which takes place at the University of Toronto. That's the same place... Where from ah, where Nicola is. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's 1916 right now. You've got a young Frederick Grant Banting graduates from the uh, Faculty of Medicine. And you've got Charles Best, 
joining the university, enrolling in a um, general arts programme. And then the third character appears in 1918, so a couple of years later. That's John McLeod. Oh, I thought you were going to say Marjorie the dog. I'm still waiting for her to appear <laughs> on the scene. It's John McLeod. Um, he becomes chair of the physiology department. So now you've got Banting, Best and McLeod. Got it. At the University of Toronto. Now, in 1920, Banting reads a paper on diabetes and the pancreas and he gets an idea an experiment. And he meets with McLeod, who says he will arrange for Banting to try out his idea in the physiology labs of the university. I found some amazing items whilst researching this in the University of Toronto Library's database. Ooh, yeah. I love a good archive collection. I'm going to show them to you as we kind of go through the story. And here is the first one I'm going to pass to you. This is the letter from McLeod to Banting Ooh, okay. that he sent him on uh, March 11th, 1921. Let me put my glasses on. She's putting on her glasses. Getting serious. So this is a, a typewritten letter. It's obviously, you know, typewriter situation kind of days. I will be glad to have you come up here on May 15th, as you suggest, to see what you can do with the problem of pancreatic diabetes, which we spoke about. I doubt, however, whether it would be advisable to attempt any preliminary operations during the Easter holidays, since between that time and May 16th, there will be no one here personally interested in the supervision of the animals. And this supervision, as you know, is of extreme importance in all regions researches of this character. Between these dates, everyone on the staff in the lab will be under the unfortunate necessity of devoting a great part of this time to examinations, detail, and to other things pertaining to the winding up of the session. I think that after May 15th, when you could get close personal attention to the work, it could proceed satisfactorily within the time which you suggest you could give to it. With regards, I am sincerely yours. James Cloud. I just think there's something wonderful about actually like being able to read the letters between them. I love that. I think that's so cool. And also it definitely speaks to how much time and effort. Bureaucracy. And bureaucracy. Lab work is. It's not all these big, exciting, sexy discoveries. It's a lot of like, oh crap, it's Christmas. I have to go into the lab and feed myself. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what I kind of want to go through. These like steps of doing research like this. So this has all been arranged for May. Okay. Yeah. May 1921. End of, end of the session, as he says, exam time. McLeod has secured the physiology labs and he gives him a research assistant, gives him Best, who we met earlier. That's right. And also 10 dogs. Oh. One of which is Marjorie. Marjorie, right. Marjorie. On May the 17th, they start their experiments. They had uh, a dog and they closed the pancreatic ducts of this dog. They had uh, the dog being kept alive until the eyelids would degenerate and they were able to isolate the secretion. So they're closing off the pancreatic ducts of the dogs. They isolate the secretion. Now, this extract, or I quote, thick brown muck. Ooh, very technical term. Healthy dog's pancreas. Thick brown muck. This is what we know. We know this extract is essentially insulin. Right, so they're getting this kind of the the juice, the important juice oh. out of the pancreas, and that is an extract that they're then gonna carry on using for lots of these experiments. Ah, so they've extracted it from the dog, and now it's what they're using as insulin to test. Mm-hmm. So they've taken it from a healthy dog's pancreas. Got it. That is what we know as insulin. Mm. They call it, and this, they first use this term in August the 4th of 1921, they call it Iseltin. Okay. That's what they decide to call it, right? Now, I know that I mentioned that Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer Sharpie Schaefer has, uh, has called the chemical that he identifies insulin in 1910, which is obviously 11 years before this. That's clearly not being adopted. Mm. Or maybe they just don't know it. Hmm. So Banting and Best do a bunch of experiments with this Iseltin. A few days later... August the 11th, dog number 92 
is depancreatized. Okay. I.e. the pancreas is removed. Got it. And it's given regular injections of this isotin. And they record that its blood sugar levels decrease. Look at this. I have a copy <gasps> of the actual Ooh, data. I, like, uh, oh my God. This is a, a, a hand charted on graph paper with a pen. Gr- like you would see in a scientific paper today done digitally with dates and tiny little cramped handwriting and these big uh, swings of lines in blue and red charting this dog's insulin yes, and two blood dogs sugar. Worth of data, yeah, and you're seeing their blood uh, blood glucose levels. Whoa, that's cool. So you see that after those regular injections of Isoltin, the blood glucose levels decrease and it lives for 20 days. And we can work out what's happening here, right? If they've removed the pancreas, they've removed that dog's source of insulin, which means that it can't get that glucose into the cells to produce energy. Right. So the blood, it stays in the blood and the blood sugar levels go up Mm -hmm. and that makes it sick. It gets diabetes. But if you then inject Isoltin, this extract, this thick brown muck, what we now know as insulin, (laughs) then that enables the depancreatized dog to get glucose into its cells again and lower its blood sugar levels and then it stops suffering from diabetes. Brilliant. September, McLeod returns from Scotland. Banting and Best are like, look what we've done. And he goes, promising, repeat your experiments. Like a good scientist should. Everything should be repeatable. Rigorous and reproducible. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Let's jump forward to November the 14th. This is essentially the first time that Banting and Best start talking about what they're doing to the Department of Physiology's Journal Club. They publish it later as the Internal Secretion of the Pancreas. Promising so title. They're yeah, so they're obviously, um, they know that something's happening. Now we get to meet Marjorie. I'm so ready. I've been waiting. Woof. November the 18th. Her official name is Dog33. Got it. She's depancronized or depancreatized. I don't know. I say it differently every time. <laughs> Whatever happens, she the pancreas is removed. She becomes diabetic. Bummer. Right? Like the dogs before her, but Marjorie is going to be the first longevity experiment. So they, she gets to survive? Starts on December the 6th, 1921. Another amazing thing from these archives. Here you go. This is the note card from the day. Good luck reading this. It's oh like God. it's like um, doctor's writing. I was going to say, it's like a prescription. Oh, jeez Louise. Okay. Um, <laughs> sugar excreted. Oh, dog very hungry. Yeah. <laughs> we have decided to consent this day into a longevity feeding milk and lean meat. Wait, that's so cute. They were like, we like this one. Can she maybe stick around for a while? <laughs> I can just picture Marjorie in her, I don't know, whatever test holding cell being like, but please. Sir, Big eyes. Please, sir, I'm very very hungry. <laughs> Whether they got that emotionally attached to their dogs or not, Marin, I really don't know. <laughs> so they use Isleton to keep Marjorie alive for 70 days. Mm. That's a really long time compared to previously. So like they say, longevity study, they're showing that this could be a longer term solution for people who have this disease. Yes, from regular, well, for dogs. Right. Dogs just now. Yeah. We don't know about the humans. Not yet. yet. We'll get to that. Sadly, she was eventually put down because she had abscesses at the injection sites Mm. uh, and there were more pressing needs for that extract Hmm. because the amount of that extract is kind of reducing. Okay, so December of that year, right? We're still all within that same same year. RIP Marjorie. So this is all happening from, they started in May in 1921, right? And we're now in December of that same year. The fourth member of the team joins. This is James Bertram Collett. He's done a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Toronto a few years back. He joins Banting and Best and McLeod and begins 
insulin experiments with rabbits. Quite a team here. Now, Collip helps them purify the Isle tin with the intention to use it on humans. Mm. And what he does is he gets it from another source. He was a, he was a biochemist. And uh, his expertise was uh, in uh, purification, uh, isolation, and uh, yes, he helped the team to obtain the purified uh, extract from, uh, from animals. Oxen and porks. Oxen and porks? Yeah, so cattle and pigs uh, rather than dogs. So he's trying to find a, another better source to produce this thick brown muck, this insulin that they're injecting into test animals. Yeah, what they call isoltin. Okay. And on December the 20th, 1921, the first human receives the extract. 1921? This is a friend of Banting, Dr. Joseph Gilcrest. That seems like a bit of a conflict of interest there. We wouldn't do that today. <laughs> <laughs> Here is a little note card. From the day. <laughs> Man very hungry. No, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you laugh, but if he does have diabetes, then, he's very then, hu- then, then he, he is, is very hungry. hungry. So yeah. we shouldn't really laugh at that. That's true. It says, gave him extract that we ferment to be potent by mouth on an empty stomach. And then on the next day, December 21st, they add, no beneficial result. Bummer. But also, fermenting. Interesting new step. We think it's... For, I, 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 I struggle to see what that word is. So that's do, why I was like, it looks like something ferment. To make it more potent. So yeah. some kind of process, some kind yeah. of processing happening. So sadly, yeah. And also administering great. by mouth, you know, not injection. Yeah. Anyway, not great. Didn't work. Bummer. So, yeah. But also just trial one, you know? Two weeks later, they try again. Good for them. With someone else. It's, it's January the 11th. This is a big, big day. Okay. They're going to try it with the first hospitalized patient mm. who's going to receive Isleton as a 14 year old in Toronto hospital called Leonard Thompson. Who we assume is very sick with type 1 diabetes. Yeah. It doesn't give the details as mm. to which type it could be. Don't get your hopes up. All right. Uh-oh. Because the Toronto Library database says the injection had little effect. Oh, bummer, man. Yeah. I read in a paper actually that it caused a sterile abscess, had no effect on ketosis and resulted in mild blood glucose reduction. Mm. So nothing Nof- significant. Just over a week later though, January the 23rd, 1922. They're not giving up. Collips extract is given to Leonard Thompson. So same guy. The American Diabetics Association says that within 24 hours, Leonard's dangerously high blood glucose levels dropped to near normal levels. Finally some progress. This is the first success use of insulin on a human. Result. Leonard lives for another 13 years, apparently. Apparently had a a normal, if rather short, I guess, life since he started receiving insulin. Huh. In the 20s. Things then move really fast and I'm going to whiz you through how that drug was developed and rolled out and I'm going to raise a couple of big questions as well, including mentioning the person who is missing throughout this whole story. Mm. But all that will come after the ads. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. So Banting, Best, McLeod and Collip have just achieved the first successful use of insulin on a human. Huge. This is huge. And now things move really fast. Two days later, January 25th, um, an agreement is drawn at the Connaught Antitoxin Laboratories for the manufacturer of a small run of what we now call insulin. Insulin. Because now, I mean, once they've demonstrated it, its effectiveness in one patient, obviously the next step is, okay, how do we make enough of it to make it a medicine for lots of people? Exactly, exactly. They are still calling it Isoltin or just pancreatic extract. They're still using that phrase mm. in, even in a lecture in February uh, and a paper that they published off the back of it. March 1922, so just two months after Leonard Thompson's successful treatment, the team published a paper 
which constitutes the first official announcement that an extract has been developed which alleviates the symptoms of diabetes in human beings. So I asked Nicola what they'd be feeling like at that time, and he humbly said... I have never done uh, such important discoveries in my life, so I can only imagine how important uh, could it be for them. The newspapers, however, they pick up the story. Here you go. I've got a selection of newspaper headlines to show you from the they archives. They realise how big a deal it is. Okay, so this is from the Toronto Daily Star, a very old, aged-looking newspaper. Toronto doctors on track of diabetes cure. Another one says, diabetes sufferers given message of hope. So diabetes is a a big enough problem and enough people are suffering from it that this is big news at the time, even to the general public. Absolutely. It's still local news currently. It's still really Toronto where this kind of this conversation is having. What I love is that those newspapers headlines are actually quite accurate. They're like on track for a diabetes cure, (laughs) right? Or given message of hope. They're not nothing like current headlines. They're like (laughs) cure found. Those were the days. Yeah, those are the days. Not that there was any yellow journalism before this time ever, no. But this huge, huge high is followed by a really deep low. Mm. The production of Iseltin fails and none is made between March and May. This is something I feel like we're hitting upon in, in lots of these episodes is that these world-changing drugs are developed, they're discovered, they're isolated, and then... The problem is, how do you make enough of it to be an actual medicine? Yeah, or even how do you even just continue making successful active compounds? Right, reproducible, again. I asked Nicola why. Because um, until you have a precise protocol for purifying a substance, the quality of a purified substance may vary according to the lots. It must have been so frustrating for them. Right, because they hit upon this seeming cure and then they can't make it work again. After almost three terrible months, Best finally succeeds in making potent isoltin again. And the next month, April 1922, the director of research at a big pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, he'd been in the audience at their lecture a few months back. He then sent a letter to McLeod to formally offer a collaboration to mass produce insulin. How serendipitous. He just happened to be in the audience and he was like, yeah, we'll make that. That's well, so cool. I think he sensibly was like going <laughs> to these sorts of talks, sniffing around for the yeah, next big enough. opportunity. <laughs> McLeod turns down the offer. Why? Well, again, it's a thing that comes up in a few of our stories. I think it's about protecting mm. what you've done and not necessarily wanting to just give that to a pharmaceutical company, or maybe he doesn't feel it's ready. Maybe he's aware of what's been happening that year. They do, however, open up a diabetic clinic under Banting and Dr. Gilchrist's Supervision is the one that got the first human treatment, but sadly it didn't work at that, at that oh, point. Oh, bummer. Hey, at least he's, he didn't throw in the towel and he was like, yeah, you guys are on the right track. Wait, I have a question. So at this time, when they turned down Eli Lilly's offer, how are they making the insulin? They're just making, from what I understand, they're just making it themselves. From Probably using collops protocol, I think, from oxen, oxen and, and pork. Oxen and porks? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So the next month, May. The reason I want to give, keep giving you the dates is because it, I just find it super interesting being able to kind of plot no, this I mean, out. This I think it's my nerdy brain this being able to plot it out months. during the year. And also you can picture it like on the timescale of your own life and you're like, okay, mm. January, amazing, brilliant discovery. And then in March, you're still like, oh God, we can't get it to work. I just think it's really a really good way to actually sketch out what discovery takes mm. and the process of turning that right, into a drug. It's not a discovery, bam, and then you're done. It's like, oh, there's some ups and downs. So May, McLeod presents a paper 
at the Association of American Physicians meeting in Washington. So this this is a paper much widely publicising the announcement, right? It's the first time they've kind of gone beyond Toronto. It's the first time the extract is referred to in public as... Insulin. insulin. Got it. In a matter of weeks, the first diabetic patient in the US receives insulin. So Ooh, we've now kind of fast. crossed from Canada into America. It's an international medicine yeah. now. And McLeod decides to accept a revised offer from Eli Lilly, that pharmaceutical company, to start manufacturing insulin. So he says yes. He's like, yeah, it's time. So just think about this timeline thing again, right? The first successful use of insulin on Leonard Thompson was in January. Now this is May. It's only taken four, five months to move from their first successful treatment in Toronto to announcement, manufacturer, and now treatment in another country. Speedy. I mean, we like you think about pharmaceutical development timelines nowadays, and it's years. Absolutely. So uh, clinical trials then also start to begin in Boston and in other cities in the US and Canada. In October, there is a diabetic patient called Elsie Needham. She's brought back to consciousness from a coma, from a diabetic coma. With insulin, with this insulin. Yeah. yeah. And what's also happening during this first year after this first successful treatment is that the team sets up an insulin committee at the University of Toronto to control the licensing, the patenting and trademarking of insulin. Now, this is an important next step. And a patent gives the team a right to stop other people from copying and manufacturing, selling, importing it without their permission. Sure, this which is, is which is good for the people who make the thing and protecting their livelihood or, you know, their discovery. Their intellectual property but at the and s- the safety. That's true. That's a good point. But at the same time, isn't it a little limiting? Because then someone can have absolute control over the supply of this very important drug. Well, Banting refuses to put his name on the patent. Huh. He feels that it would be unethical for a doctor to to do that and to profit from a discovery that he thinks would save lives. Collip and Best do put their names on the patent, but they sell it to the university for a whopping one dollar. No way. Okay, so they're good guys. Yeah. They're good guys on the in the pharmaceutical history. Admirable. I've got like huge respect for them doing that. Because they could have made a fortune. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. They want everyone you know, who needs the medication to be able to afford it. So once they've organised the patent, they can then sell that patent or gift it to groups around the world, which then gives, you know, permits them to import it or even better, make it themselves. Here's another little cutting from a newspaper. Ooh, I love it. Okay. There you go. Have a, have a, it's just a line, really, that I want you to spot in that one. <laughs> That's cute. All right, so it says, new diabetes treatment, Canada's gift. Insulin patent for Britain. Now Britain, yeah, the Medical Research Council receives the patent for insulin. So we're going international. And also uh, America gets the patent as well in January of 1923. So we're in 1923, the year after, essentially it's a year after Leonard Thompson's treatment. It's becoming widely available. People are still injecting insulin. Yes. In May of that year, the UK Great Britain becomes the first country to make insulin commercially available, i.e. people can buy it. Mm. Back in the US, Ely Lilly's exclusive agreement ends in June, which means that other pharmaceutical companies start applying for the licenses and the insulining committee begin to collect royalties from their sales. Uh oh. Mid October. US and Canada follow Britain's suit, albeit five months later, making insulin commercially available. Which is just, it's problematic on so many levels. I guess like 
I can objectively see it from both sides. Yeah, I mean, if we live in a capitalist world, which we do, obviously you see the gains to be made there. But if it's something that someone needs to survive... And it's the team that developed it want it to be available. Yes, then the fact that you have to pay for it is pretty messed up. But then less than two years after they were experimenting with the extract on Marjorie, right? Just let that sink in. Less than two years... After they're experimenting with Marjorie, the dog, Banting and McLeod <laughs> are awarded the Nobel Prize in Holy Medicine. Holy crap. I mean, doesn't it usually take somebody's the rest of somebody's life to a, have them get the Nobel Prize for what amazing. they did? Yeah, October the 25th, 1923, for the discovery of insulin. I mean, to be fair, yes, well deserved. I mean, that changes so many people's lives. It does change medicine. What an amazing story, right? Surprisingly so brilliant to use an extract of thick brown muck from a dog as a treatment for illness. Well, in the whole trajectory of discovery, I noticing symptoms and then this noticing of the removal of the pancreas and from there getting smaller and smaller and smaller down to an extract of a pancreas and then this remarkable timeline of drug development in humans. That's incredible. Now, as we do with every story, before we say ta let's actually find out what happened ta-ra. next. I'm not going to say ta-ra. That's a Brit thing, I guess, isn't it? ta <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out what happened next. I've got a big question about the topic. Actually, two big things that I kind of want to discuss. The cost, mm. as we've already flagged, and a missing person. What? First things first, though, a couple of issues with that original insulin. Issue one... The original insulin treatment only had a short-lived effect, so it required several injections each day. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you get lots of teams around the world working to try to extend its period of effect. Uh, A chemist in Denmark, it's called H.C. Hagedon, managed to do just that, added Mm. something to the mix called protamine. In Toronto, again, researchers add zinc, which makes insulin last for longer than 24 hours. Whoa, so you don't have to jab multiple times a day? Imagine the difference that would would have yeah. on your, your lifestyle. Issue number two with the original insulin is that it come from cattle and pigs. I was going to say, we're still using huge farm animals to make this brown muck, which is, you know, I mean, in lots of objections to that, but also very expensive and resource intensive, I imagine. And it means that although it's similar to human insulin, it is a little bit different. Oh. And so, you know, even, even that little bit of difference means that some patients' immune systems sense it as foreign and can produce antibodies that make it ineffective. Dang. So even though you have this miraculous treatment, you may not be able to use it because you have an immune problem to it. Exactly. Um, Nicola picks up the story here. Another British guy, uh, my family is the Sanger, was able uh, to sequence the structure of uh, insulin. And by the way, for this, he was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry three years later. And um, to have the structure of uh, insulin has uh, advanced a lot of is uh, uh, advancing a lot of the field, uh, enable uh, also to produce uh, more effective uh, kinds of insulin. The first synthetic products date back to the 60s, uh, were done uh, in the USA, in uh, China, and in Western Germany. Sanger, I've heard of him. Yes, and now, good. as I'm discovering for a good reason, because he's the first to synthesize insulin? No, he's the first to work out the structure. Ah. He essentially sequences the structure. He got the Nobel Prize for chemistry. For I mean, that. yes, because that means that we then later are able to synthesize it in a lab. Exactly. Yeah, actually, he got 
two Nobel Prizes. Whoa, buddy. The first one was the one in chemistry, as as uh, Nicola mentioned, for the structure of proteins, especially insulin. Then he got another one. I, uh, I think that was half of another chemistry Nobel Prize for stuff to do with the bases. Hey, man, leave some for the rest of us. DNA Jeez. bases. <laughs> two Nobel Prizes. Nobody needs that many. Okay, but that is really important because now that we know the structure of insulin, that means that we don't have to be dependent on these other organisms to produce it. We can synthesize it in a laboratory. Yes, you can make the first synthetic insulin. I read that it was done using E. coli bacteria oh, in yeah, 1978. Buddy. So I wanted to know how that actually works. So I asked Nicola. Since you know uh, the, the structure, I mean the sequence of uh, amino acids of uh, insulin, uh, you are able to produce uh, insulin in the laboratory by recombinant DNA techniques. Okay, wait. And we need to talk about this for a second because I'm so excited. You've gotten to my neck of the woods here, Greg, with microbes. E. coli get a bad rap, let's just say. Yes, they make us sick. Okay, fine. Maybe some of us get food poisoning. But E. coli are one of the most common lab organisms used because you can essentially ask them, you know, genetically by giving <laughs> hey, them. Hey, E. coli. How are you, are you feeling doing? today? You good? Can you just do me a favor? Be busy. Ask them with DNA by in, by changing their genome, basically get them to express compounds that you need. So you can basically genetically modify these microbes to then produce a hormone like insulin. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I love them. I mean, that's pretty amazing. In 1978. So that's amazing because then you can scale up production and you don't necessarily have this immune response problem anymore. Exactly. Not the same possible rejection that they were having before. There are other developments as well. Um, it all been always been delivered through injection. But in 2006, the first inhaled insulin was Whoa, developed. I yeah. didn't know that was a thing. Does it work? It was a, yeah, absolutely. It, it was a large device, essentially, and there didn't really seem to be any real benefit. So patient just didn't really adopt it and, oh. it, and it kind of stuck with injections. But I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, idea. funky. I've never heard of that. Um, you've also got things like smaller needles, genetically modified insulin. Some people have a pump, right, that sort of delivers insulin it automatically. Pumps, yeah, and implants. Yeah, mm. um, and kind of better testing. So, you know, all of that is the kind of what happened next. But two big things that I want to end by discussing, right? The first is the cost. Yeah. So we talked about this earlier, Banting Best, Colin McLeod, they wanted everyone who needed that medica uh, medication to be able to afford it. In the UK, you know, home for me, we can get insulin for free on mm -hmm. the NHS. Mm -hmm. but that's not the case everywhere in the world, <sighs> like here in the US. So sad. Millions of diabetics are not able to afford the insulin they need to control their blood sugar levels. Which and just seems, seems cruelly ironic that we've gotten into this point where it's so easy to use relatively. It's so, it's, there aren't as many problems with it it's it's there should be no barrier to someone who suffers from diabetes and yet the market is getting in the way the cost is now the problem from what i've read the cost of the four most popular types of insulin has tripled over the past decade. I've read uh, so many headlines of people having to go across the border to Canada to get insulin that they can afford. Wow. Because it's so expensive here. Well, some people, I think the average monthly price I read was like 450. What the heck? I know. And that means to people, people skip doses or they try to, you know, extend, like eke out their <sighs> supplies for longer. Which is incredibly dangerous for your health. Like that is to a direct detriment on your body. Here you go. In 1996, one particular common brand of insulin cost 21 bucks for a 10 milliliter vial. The price of the same vial now 
That was 21. It's now 275. For 10 milliliters. Are you joking? So there are people who are fighting to change this. I was reading about the Affordable Drug Manufacturing Act being proposed, but that um, didn't progress, apparently, that bill. Who's surprised? In Colorado, there is a law that caps costs at $100 a month. Which, all right, fine, good effort, but also that's still out of reach of so many people. There is an insurance company, actually, which says they'll cap it at 25, but then I think I think I was reading that there are certain things you need to be, you know, boxes you need to be able to tick in order to be able to get that. This affects more than 7 million diabetic Mm. Americans who take insulin. I mean, what's the solution? I mean, you're asking me and my (laughs) answer is going to be socialized medicine, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, price transparency, more competition, you know, does that drive it down? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in the the whole pharmaceutical issue, I think we've touched on in a couple of episodes of this podcast is that you need to, that this this element of financial incentive in medicine is antithetical to the purpose of medicine or scientific research. Like if that, if the purpose of science is to advance human health, which some might argue is one of the major reasons for doing science, then adding in this element of can we make a profit off of it just veers that whole thing off course. It doesn't need to be like this, Mm. right? Nicola mentioned elsewhere around the world where it is a different story. But there are some countries like India, for example, which also I think Egypt, which have been able to uh, synthesize the same uh, drug, but with um, a very low cost, less than $100. And the pharmaceutical company has tried to sue these countries, India and Egypt, but they have lost uh, because uh, the Supreme Court of Egypt and uh, India have recognized that it is uh, a human right to be to be cured and uh, that uh, the treatment has to, to be fair and affordable by everyone. Nice one, Egypt. Yeah, good for them. Good, good role model there. Not possible everywhere, though. But um, Could be. I'm going to leave that there for now because I want to end on a missing person. Yeah, what's this mystery you keep alluding to? So, I, I, you know, I had this chat with Nicola about this story and we were chatting for quite a while and I said to him at the end, I said, you know, is there anything you want to add? Mm. And this is what he said. I think that uh, we have missed uh, a part of a scientist that uh, has greatly contributed to discovery of insulin, but uh, is not very well known because uh, probably Paulescu was uh, the first to discover insulin, maybe also before Banting and McLeod, but because of the World War, he was able to announce is a discovery ordinator and was also excluded by the Nobel Prize Committee. And despite of this, I think that his merits should be more acknowledged. But you know, this is, um, I can say, typical of uh, every discovery. He's talking about someone called Nicolae Paulescu. And I want to kind of briefly tell you his story. So he's a Romanian scientist head of the physiology department at the University of Bucharest Medical School. Um, And he claims to have been the first person to discover what we now call insulin, but what he called pancreen. 
which to be honest is a bit more of an obvious name than deriving yeah, something from the cells catchier. and the eyelets of the Langans or whatever it was. The year for this is 1916. So okay, so this is before the Canadians. It's six years, yeah, it's six years after Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer <laughs> suggests that it's caused by that one chemical miss- missing in, in pancreas that, sure. that is going to eventually be called insulin by him and others. So you could argue therefore that Paul Esco was beaten to naming it mm. by Sharpie Schaefer, but then Banting and McLeod etc. don't name it until later but then it's 1916 it's five years before Banting Best and the team start their experiments on dogs and Paul Esco in 1916 takes an extract from the pancreas of a cow and injects it into a diabetic dog sounds familiar and sees that it regulates its blood sugar levels five years before Banting and Best do the same so where's he in this story he doesn't publish because he's called up to serve in the Romanian army during World War One. so it wasn't until he returned in 1921 that he released a paper on it. And he actually secured a Romanian patent the year after for his method of production from cattle. That's April 1922. Banting and Best had treated Leonard Thompson in January, so a few months earlier. But they didn't announce it until March. They didn't announce it wider to like the whole of America in May. They didn't get their patent until after that. So he's got the first patent. So when Banting and McLeod were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1923, <laughs> Walesku writes to the Nobel Committee to say, hang on, yeah, I did this before them, but his claims were rejected. Because of the timelines? They acknowledged that Banting and Best did know of Paul Esku's <gasps> work because they actually referenced it in their 1921 paper. What? But they misinterpreted Paul Esko's paper. What? <laughs> so, I mean, they could have still based their work on it, but many years later, Best did say, I would like to state how sorry I am for this unfortunate error, and I trust that your efforts to honour Professor Paul Esku will be rewarded with great success. No. Oh, that's nice of him. Eventually. Um, <laughs> also, the chairman of the Nobel Prize Committee for Physiology and Medicine, who had previously rejected Paul Esku's claims, did say, in my opinion, the prize should, without any doubt, have been shared between well, Paul Esku, Banting <laughs> and Best. A bit too late, my friend. But also, can you imagine having having to write in to the Nobel Prize Committee and being like, excuse me, <laughs> this is also mine. Thank you. <laughs> and if you actually look on the, on the Nobel Prize website, 1923, for Physiology or Medicine, it still says it's jointly awarded to Frederick Grant Banting and John James Ricard McLeod. There's Yikes. still no mention of Paulescu, despite what the chairman said. Ha! Huh. Maybe we need to start a petition. Hmm, a Paulescu petition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to share that because, that that, again, awesome, this is, it's so important about recognising not only the whole team mm. involved behind something like this, and when only a couple of names goes on a Nobel Prize, but also that there are other people that do this who, who, gets who left aren't out getting the recognition. Because of miscommunication, crossed up timelines, misinterpretation of results. I really enjoy telling you that because that fun. just to see how quickly this thing kind of develops yeah. and then also talk about some of these bigger issues. How um, important it is, what's going on today. I loved it. That was so cool, Greg. Thank you. I really appreciated that. If you also loved hearing about insulin, then please do rate and review this podcast. It helps us grow, as does you telling your friends about it, because we have more episodes coming soon. And we hope you subscribe so that you can catch them all as they come out. If you have another story from science history that you want to hear us talk about, or a discovery, an invention, a medicine, a person that you want to know the story behind, then please email us, brilliant at seeker.com. That is brilliant at seeker.com. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from 
speaker. Today's episode was researched, written and produced by me, Greg Foote. If you want to get in touch on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Greg Foote. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube and other such places. And I got to listen today and ask questions. And my name is Marin Hunsberger. If you want to get in touch with me on the internet, I'm at Marin B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, Marin Hunsberger on YouTube, and I'm all over Seeker's YouTube channel. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakudur. Finally, another thanks to our expert for today, Dr. Nicola Bragazzi. If you want to see any of my references and the things that I read, or to follow the link to, to actually look at some of those case notes and some of those cuttings. They were cool. Links to those will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening, you guys. Come we'll back. see you next time. Next time, I'm telling the story now. Oh yeah, bring it on. Bye. Bye.